Chapter 10 of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That is L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot O-R-G. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Chapter 10, Part 2. Many people are ready to declare that the conspiracy of silence which has characterized the old-fashioned attitude of mind with regard to sex matters generally is due to the church more than to any other agency. I think that from what we have said, the church's insistence on reticence with regard to sex subjects as the policy most likely to do good in the long run is now recognized by psychologists as being founded on motives that are the basis of natural defense by human nature in an extremely thorny matter. Ignorance is not innocence, but a saving lack of knowledge may spare a great many evil suggestions that would otherwise work harm. You cannot neutralize sex temptations by the provision of knowledge. You cannot even minimize them, and you may tactlessly add not too little to their danger. There is a prudentery, which is not proper reticence, that is cultivated by some people who happen incidentally to be religiously inclined. They would not call a spade a spade for the world. They would not hint at the fact that conjugation is always the origin of life for worlds. They would not use certain plain words that must be used in order to express very definite ideas without the feeling that they had smirched themselves by saying such things. If they had gone through Europe in the old days and seen the public comfort arrangements, they would have collapsed then and there. All this is sheer prudentry, and when applied to sex matters, represents really a neurosis of excessive precaution and inhibition with regard to some of the most natural things in the world. Anyone who understands even a little of the religious attitude towards marriage will appreciate readily that such a state of mind is as far as possible from being that of the church. Marriage is termed holy and blessed, and the ministers of the sacrament are the married persons themselves. Only those who fail to comprehend religious teachings in these matters have suggested that religious reticence, with its conservation of that supreme reverence which even the great pagan teacher Quintilian recognized as due to the youth, represented as unfortunate cultivation of harmful ignorance. On the contrary, it is a part of the great tradition of age-long reticence which represents the highest wisdom of humanity, hence the reversion to the mode of dealing with the question which has characterized the teaching of conservative psychologists in the last few years. The greatest safeguard of purity with all that it means for the preservation of health and strength is the practice of self-denial with regard to the luxuries of life. No element in life has emphasized that and encouraged its practice so much or so constantly, and so persistently tried to train her children in it from youth as religion. It is almost impossible for young people particularly to keep right in this matter if they constantly indulge in luxuries. The very word luxury has come to be defined as lust and lasciviousness and indulgence in lust, because there is such an almost inevitable connection between the exuberance of animal spirits, which develops in connection with indulgences and luxuries of various kinds, that two words have almost necessarily come to an intimate association. The word is applied to the friskness or wantonness of animals, and it is very easy to understand its application. Men as well as animals, who will take more food than their occupations in life enable them to dispose of properly, become similarly wanton or out of control. In scriptural words, they wax fat and kick. Religion has encouraged innocent enjoyment of every worthy sort as a distraction of mind and an outlet for youthful energy. 
but is discouraged in every way possible that complete gratification of the senses or of bodily desires which is so likely to be fatal to such strength of will as will enable people to control themselves clark says quote, luxury does not consist in the innocent enjoyment of any of the good things which god has created to be received with thankfulness but in the wasteful abuse of them to vicious purposes in ways inconsistent with soberity justice or charity quote, end. Professor Forster, whose books on the subject of the training of youth and especially on sex matters in youth attracted so much attention shortly before the war, faced frankly this problem of the necessity for the practice of mortification, whereas he did not hesitate to call it genuine asceticism. The exercise of the virtues of self-control and self-denial is the most important factor for the protection of youth. He said, quote, all solutions of the sex problem which tend to emancipate sex feeling from the control of moral and spiritual law, instead of making it the chief aim to place the spirit in a position of mastery of the sex nature, are essentially hostile, not only to our whole social evolution and to the development of individual character, but to the actual physical health in the sphere of sex. To secure the mastery of man's higher self over the world of animal desire is a task, however, which demands a more systematic development of willpower and the cultivation of a deeper faith in the spiritual destiny of humanity than are to be found in the superficial, intellectualistic civilization of today. To achieve such a result, it will be necessary not only to have recourse to new methods and new ideals, but to make sure that we do not allow what is valuable and in any way worthy of imitation in the old to be forgotten. The aesthetic principle in particular is today in danger of being undervalued. Quote, end. The cult of the body, which has become so much the occupation of the present generation, which refuses to make the necessary effort of mind to secure intellectual pleasures, has always been the special depression of the church. A great many of the words in the language showed the effect of that religious attitude very clearly. Sensuousness, while its original meaning is only anything connected with the senses, has come to a mean quality of being particularly alive to the pleasure that is received through the senses and therefore by implication, at least, not particularly intellectual. The Edinburgh Quarterly Reviewer long ago, in the famous article which Byron suggested as having snuffed out the fiery particle of Keats' soul, hurt him most by suggesting his lack of intellectuality and declaring that he was, quote, too soft and sensuous by nature to be exhilarated by the conflict of modern opinions, quote, end. Hence, quote, he found an opiate for his dependency in the old tales of Greek mythology, quote, end. Sensuality, even more than sensuousness, has come to mean under the sway of the senses and the bodily desires rather than the mind. Pope spoke of men, quote, sensualized by pleasure, quote, end, like those who were, quote, changed into brutes by Circe, quote, end. There is probably no epithet that a man of intelligence resents more than to be called a sensualist. Goldsmith summed it up when he spoke of, quote, the vulgar satisfaction of soliciting happiness from sensual enjoyment alone, quote, end. Religion has particularly emphasized the danger that the actual degradation of human nature which this brought about. Bishop Atterbury declared that, quote, no small part of virtue consists in abstaining from that in which sensual men place their felicity, quote, end. Longer ago, Shakespeare summed up the degeneration of the sensualist when he said, quote, those pampered animals that rage in savage sensuality, quote, end. This is quite literal degeneracy, for as man is both animal and rational, Overindulgence in the pleasures of the senses drags him down towards his animal nature, 
that is, toward the genus below the genus Homo, in which man belongs. No wonder men resent the epithet degenerate. As the result of the influence of religion, other words such as carnal, worldly, have become to be stamped with a meaning which makes people understand much better than would otherwise be the case the real significance of indulgence in bodily or merely earthly pleasure. The words are no longer fashionable, but that is because the deeds which they represent have become quite fashionable, and those who affect them do not want to have an innuendo of decadence and wrongful indulgence which necessarily goes with them apply to their acts. Religion has thus created a state of the public mind that has been extremely helpful against sensual pleasures and their power to ruin health. So long, of course, as religion held its place and influence over men. Above all, religion has insisted, and it is almost the only agency which continues to do so, that there can be no purity with its power for good for the health of both mind and body if the excitements of sensuality are indulged in. There must not only be doing of evil, but there must be, as far as possible, no thinking about it, and especially there must be no dwelling on sensual pleasure, for bodily cravings will almost surely be aroused that make temptation more insuperable. To think of delicate viands when one is hungry causes a flow of saliva, making the mouth water, but we know now that it causes a flow of what we are called the appetite juices in the stomach, which adds materially to the feeling of hunger and would make it very hard to resist taking food if it were placed before one, even though there might be some rather serious dangers connected to its taking. The thirsty soldier finds it extremely difficult to obey military laws with regard to not drinking any water that has not been examined and declared wholesome by the medical regime of the army and if he should dwell much on his thirst, it would make it ever so much harder to restrain if water from outside military sources should be offered to him. Other pleasures of sense are even more likely to become the subject of almost insuperable temptations if the objects of them are dwelt on. Religion, therefore, has insisted, and is still insisting, on the necessity of avoiding attendance at such theaters as quite inevitably set up by sensual excitation. Fashion, which is another word for the world, and religion has always pointed out that three great enemies of the development of the spirit of man are the world, the flesh, and the devil, has always set itself in opposition to religion in the approval of sensual gratification. That conflict is an ending. A great many people declare that they would rather be out of the world than out of fashion, and it is surprising what insensate things fashion leads people to. The present fashion for the slow dance with the partners closely wrapped in one another's arms, for that is, of course, the essence of all the modern dances, no matter what their varying names may be, is only another development of the unending opposition between fashion and religion. Here once more, as with regard to the theater, religion presents the only serious protest. Dame fashion insists that she sees no harm in it, but that is, of course, only a fashion of speech. It is quite impossible for a physician to watch the dancing without becoming convinced that human passions must be aroused by such close contact of human bodies of opposite sexes. In this, however, as in so many other phases of life, only religion can interfere or protest with any hope of success. Her protest remains often unheard. Fashion may be almost all-powerful even against the higher cause of duty as well as against common sense. Certainly religious influence has had more to do with keeping a great many women from following the dictates of fashion and emphasizing their sex and therefore exciting the men with whom they come in contact than any other single factor.
it has not been entirely successful and never will be. The conflict will go on and worldliness will constantly come to the surface in some form or other, often to the detriment of health. And religion, when properly vital, will continue to be the most important factor in keeping evil from gaining such ascendancy as would be seriously detrimental to the healthy mind and in a healthy body. Religion is the only agency in the modern time that tries to regulate the reading of young folks, and indeed of others, in this dangerous matter of sex excitation. A great many books seem to be written at the present time for no other purpose than to excite sex feeling, and thereby to make money. They depend for their sale entirely on the fact that, for a great many people, there is a distinct physical pleasure in reading about sex subjects. This is particularly true of women, a great many of them and especially those who have not very much else to do, and who therefore have no proper outlet for animal spirits and for the energies that tend to accumulate in them, because they feed well and sleep long, are prone to indulge in this sort of luxury. Most of them would resent the suggestion that it was wrong for them to indulge their feelings in this way, but religion has always taken a decided stand and insisted that the fomenting of desire and the toying with alluring thoughts and the inventing of temptation are of themselves actually sinful as john boyle o'reilly said quote, temptation waits for all and ills will come but some go out and ask the devil home quote, end. physicians have always insisted that the sexual erotism which is excited by the reading of books on sex subjects the attending of sex problem plays and of shows of various kinds is the worst possible background for healthy living such frequent titillation of delicate nervous mechanisms plays sad havoc with general nervous control Unfortunately, just those who are indoors a great deal, who take very little exercise, and who live on dainties, are most likely to indulge in these habits of life with regard to reading and the theater and dancing and the like which are most harmful for them. They are irritable, in a nervous sense, and excitable. And this erythism increases their nervous instability, which responds by craving further excitement. A vicious circle is formed, which very often leads to nervous breakdown. Just now we're hearing much about sexual repression as the cause of nervous disorders, but sexual repression is as almost nothing in its tendency to produce neurotic or psychoneurotic affections compared to the partial tantalizing sexual indulgence which comes from sensual reading or lascivious shows. The plays that are seen, the jokes that are heard, the sex problems that are dwelt on, the stories that are read must get more and more spicy and contain more and more sex pep to afford any satisfaction and the consequence is a disturbance of delicate parts of the nervous system which react more or less seriously to lessen the control over the whole nervous mechanism of the body when dr s vire mitchell pointed out two generations ago that not only headache but rather serious nervous disturbance involving often the gastrointestinal tract and sometimes other large organs like the brain itself as well as even mental operations might come from so small a cause as disturbance of accommodation in the eye. Most physicians refused to believe that such far-reaching symptoms could come from what was apparently so trivial a factor. The accommodation mechanism of the eye is extremely delicate, however, and requires such nice adjustment that any interference with it cause a waste nervous energy that is likely to make itself felt at almost any part of the nervous system. In our day, disturbances of the eye are confessed by all to be extremely important. In something of the same way, disturbances of the sexual system of the body are reflected throughout the whole nervous system. 
Religion has counseled, commended, and thundered against any practices, however simple they might seem in themselves, and would serve as excitants for the sex feelings. Without her influence, even more harm would have been done than has been. It is the waning of religious power over public morality and public opinion that has led to the orgy of indulgence and sexual excitation, which has had such bad effects and which unfortunately so often leads to sexual acts which are fraught with the hideous dangers of venereal disease, because passion excited will find its satisfaction. Society headlessly arouses passion, but apparently cares not what happens afterwards. End of chapter 10 Part 2